Again, let me say good morning. I want to invite you to come with me on this, uh, on this hike. Imagine we're in a beautiful, thick woods, a verdant, lush woods, springtime in Alabama. Who knew there were so many shades of green? Most of it's pollen. But let's ignore that. Let's ignore that. No allergies were harmed in the making of this sermon illustration. You with me? If you're familiar with the book True Faced by uh, John Lynch and Bill Thrall and Bruce McNichol, they use the Christian journey. They use this metaphor as we're walking through. And I heard uh, Pete Briscoe take it and expand it into this introduction. And I thought, that's it. It makes so much sense. So, so imagine we're walking through this woods. The Christian journey is like a pilgrimage. We're walking. And as we're going through this thick wooded forest, there, we come to a fork in the path. You have to choose. He said, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to choose between, no, 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 you have to choose. And the, the, the paths are labeled. And over here, this path, big old sign, it says, pleasing God. Okay, who doesn't want to please God? It seems like that, that, that'd be the right path. And over here, the path is labeled trusting God. And you go, wait a minute, <laughs> that's not fair. Of course I want to please God, but of course I want to trust God. Uh, Pete Briscoe says when he got to that part in the book, he threw the book on the ground. Like, don't make me choose. The author's like, you must choose. Let me ask you, Christian, you've been walking with the Lord. Which do you choose? Where do you go? I mean, he's like, don't, no, no, that, that, that's not fair. It's not a fair choice. Don't make me choose. He says, yeah, we're coming toward it. You can't go back. What, what's it going to be? Well, everybody, I mean, since the time we're little children, we're told we're supposed to please God, right? So let's make our way down the, the, pleasing, the pleasing path, pleasing God. Pleasing God's a good thing. We come around the bend, and we see there's another label on this. It's the trying trail. And you see lots of folks on this trail, and they're trying really hard to please God. And they look, I mean, they look, for the most part, pretty well put together. And you notice there's like little little table set up. Like when you run a half marathon or a marathon or something, those little like little aid stations, right? Little cups of water. And as you go, you realize they're little stations with people to help you on your journey to please God. And so you, you come around the first one and the first one's labeled real big, uh, how to please God by reading your Bible. How to read your Bible in order to please God. And you've been told your whole life, reading your Bible, uh, following scriptures, right? That, that, Got to do that if we're going to be pleasing God. So you get there, and there's all these different coaches that are all shouting different things, and they talk about, well, you've got to, we've got to read your Bible, but which Bible? You know there's a lot of different translations. Which translation of the Bible? It doesn't have to be a paper Bible. Can you use the app? Like, you know, and, and beyond that, like, should you read your Bible in the morning time, or should you read your Bible at the nighttime? And should you, are, are you, to please God, some people are saying, no, to please God, you've got to read big passages of Scripture. Other people are like, well, you can do it in a year. Just read a little bit each day. Other people are like, no, to really please God, you've got to deep dive and really study, like, small chunks at a time and really dive deep into one verse and memorize it. Otherwise, how can you hide it in your heart? And so you're left going, hey, whoa, whoa. Can anybody just tell me how to read my Bible in order to please God? And they all look at you and go, oh, we just did. And you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> now, now I'm even more confused. So you make your way down a little further. And the next table, there's a table there. And it says, to please God, there's a table giving offering. And nobody's at that table. They just pass it on by. It's just, it's just a ghost town. 
But you've been told that like giving your offering to the church and, and, and tithing, tithing, you heard something about like, like offerings and stuff. And so you want to know. And, so you, and sure enough, like eventually some, some experts come out and some are like, oh yeah. Yeah, if you want to be pleasing to God, let me show you here. It's this, it's this Old Testament principle called tithing. And you got to give 10% of your income. Here it is in Malachi 3.10. And then somebody says, no, no, no. That's an old covenant regulation. A New Testament Christian is not under the obligation to tithe. New Testament, it's percentage giving. Well, how much? What percent? Cheerful, cheerful percent. Like, wait, but that's like not a percent. Can somebody tell me, a, like, so, so it's not a percent, but it is a percent. And is that percent off the gross or the net? Like, what, what am I supposed to do? And somebody else is like, no, 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 you're, it's not about the percent. It's about the heart. What's that look like? A percent. Okay, but like, wh- what percent? Can somebody please just tell me how much money do I have to give to God? to please God. And they all look at you dead serious and go, we just did. And you're like, oh. So you go on a little further. Now you see why it's called the trying trail. This is trying your soul. This is difficult stuff, but you want to please God. So you come around the bend and you see the next table and it says how to please God in your parenting, how to raise godly children. You're like, next. You're just like, but you go back and you know because it's not just about you pleasing God. It's about raising up the next generation to please God. And so you're like, okay, what do I need to do to please God in my parenting? And they got this big stack of books. And everybody's walking out of all these different books. And they got podcasts. like all this stuff. And they all say the same thing. Here's what you've got to do to please God as a parent. Here's what you've got to do. Ten years ago, you've got to start this ten years ago. It only works if you start when they're two. You're looking at your 16-year-old like, uh-oh. Am I the only one? Am I the only one? Can we just agree? Every publisher should subtitle every parenting book I've ever read. The subtitle should be, you had your chance. It's too late. Hope for the best. Because <laughs> like, that's how it feels like, right? They're like, well, you can read this parenting book if you need more guilt about what you should have done all along. Now it's hopeless. So now you've got all this advice on godly parenting, and, and you're supposed to be pleasing God there. You're going forward, and you're going, this this really is a trying trail. This doesn't seem to be work. I want to please God. I want to do all these things. But I so you're looking at the parenting table going, what do I need to do to raise godly children in a way that pleases God? They go, we just told you what you could have been doing. You finally go on a little further, and there's a dark offshoot. It's like going off trail. It's a dark path. It looks spooky down there. And so you're asking somebody, hey, what's that about? Oh, that's the darkness path. What, 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 what was that? Yeah, that... uh. That's the stuff that's so dark, we don't even talk. That stuff does not please God. That's a lifestyle that doesn't please God. We don't even talk about it much. We certainly don't talk about it in church. Well, well, do any Christians ever go down that path? Oh, yeah. Well, what do you you tell them? That they're not pleasing God. (laughs) Well, yeah, but like, like, how do you, what do you do when we tell them we have a big warning, don't ever go down that path? Right, but you see how like once they've gone down the path, how do you help them? We tell them what they should have done to not go down that path. <laughs> but like once they're down there, is there any hope for them or, or like hope for their kids? Yes, we give them a book on what would have worked if they'd started 10 years ago. And that's how, eventually you're like, I, this pleasing God thing, is, this is gonna wear me out. I'm weary and heavy laden. And, so you're, and then you remember, there were two paths And you think, I wonder if, I I don't know if you're allowed to go backwards, but you start walking back, and people are like, that's technically backsliding. You're like, whatever. And you make your way all the way back, and then you get back to the original fork in the road, and you see trusting God. And you're like, well, I'll give this a go. And this one's a little tougher. There's no tables anywhere. 
There's no lists. There's no like signs on what you're like supposed to do, not supposed to do. So you come around the corner, and there's Jesus. Hey! I am so glad you chose the trusting God path, right? Jesus. Oh wow! I I had like so. So you're here on the yeah. Oh, what, I mean, I mean, where, where, where's the list and where's the rules? You don't get all that. You get me. <laughs> but I, 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 am, I am so confused right now, Jesus. I thought for sure you'd be on the pleasing God path. I totally, I totally want to please you. Here I am on the trusting God path, and like you, I thought you'd be on the pleasing God. I totally want to please you. And Jesus is like, love that, love that about you. <laughs> love that your heart is to please me. But uh, I can show you how this works. Do you have your Bible? Oh, yeah. They gave me like 30 at the pleasing God table. Oh. And by the way, Jesus, since I have you here, um, what translation is the best one? Jesus like, well, the translation I used was written in Hebrew. Uh, do you speak Hebrew? No, Lord. Then I'd say the best translation for you would be um, the one in English. <laughs> Any of them, man. Just read one. Okay. Okay, okay. So what do you want me to do? I want you to turn to Hebrews. Okay. Chapter 11, right here. Yeah. Now look at verse 6. And I will miraculously make it appear on a screen behind you. Wow. <laughs> okay. The sermon illustration got off the rails. Okay. Now read, read, just read. Jesus, you want me to read this out loud? Yeah, just, just read it out loud. Like, like verse 6. Yeah. Okay. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Huh. Okay, so what did you want me to know? Read that first part again. Okay, so without faith, what is faith? Well, faith is like trusting you. Yeah, exactly, good. So without trusting God, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Say it again. Without trusting me, it's impossible to please me. That's kind of like putting it negatively. Let's put that positively. In other words, without faith, without trusting God, it's impossible to please God. So stated positively, when you trust God, you please him. It's as if Jesus is saying, when you trust me, it makes me happy. When you trust God, you please him. So, so, so we're going to walk down this trail, and I'm going to show you in my word what, what you're supposed to do. And here's all you have to do. You have to trust me enough to say yes. You have to trust me enough to be obedient. And when you do something that's so counter to this world, I'm sorry, boss, I can't do that. Why not? Because Jesus is living through me, and Jesus told me not to. And security escorts you out of this culture. You just keep trusting me. You just keep trusting me. You just keep trusting me. You don't say, no, Lord, you just trust me. And if you'll trust me completely, when you trust me, guess what you end up doing? Pleasing me. When you trust me, you please me. When you trust God, you please him. And then it dawns on you. It makes so much sense. Lord, I was so worried about the pleasing God trail, but now it makes so much sense. If I trust you, I will automatically do all the things. I will please you. Jesus is like, there you go. Well, this in some ways is so much scarier and more exciting and adventurous, but in a lot of ways it's easier. In some ways it's like a yoke that's easy and a burden that's light. Jesus is like, I said that. It was in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. You knew that. You see? 
It's like you'll get pleasing God thrown in if you just stay on the trust God trail. Well, now that, in a way, what, what pressure is taken off? What, it's like, but what about all the lists? Forget the list. Trust me. How's your trust in me? Well, what? So, okay, so you're saying if I, walk, if I walk in this trail with you and I walk on the trust you trail and I trust you with my finances and I trust you with my parenting, I, tr- I see, I trust you and everything will work out. Jesus says, whoa, I never said that. I never said everything will work out. No, 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 I thought if I trust you in my finances, I'll have financial success. Yes, but financial success will not be a big pile of money in the bank, perhaps. It will be, success will be your pleasing God. Oh, so I'm saying, if I trust you with my health, everything will work out. Uh, that's not what I promised. Uh, because health is not getting a clean bill of health from the doctor's checkup. It's pleasing me. And with your kids, so you're saying, if I just trust you in my parenting, everything will work out. Listen to what I'm saying. Trusting me, success as a Christian parent. Everybody needs to hear me say this. Success as a Christian parent. Success does not mean you raise a perfectly godly kid. Success means you trust God. You see the difference? Do you trust him, mom? Do you trust him, dad? Are you trusting God? It's a whole new way to look at success, and you're thinking, well, this is cataclysmic. This is opening up all new categories. I will please you simply if I trust you. That's right. When you trust me, God says, it makes me happy. Also, you start down this trail, and they're coming at you. You see this ragtag group of people, and they're so happy. It's like they're free. They're not wearing any mask. It's just who they are. There's a buttoned-up dad with his, he's got all the dad gear. He's got, like, the cell phone on the belt and the big, chunky New Balance sandals, and he's, like, coming down, and he's got this wife and this little girl, and next to them is this older woman, and she's, like, glowing with health, and then there's these two dudes who are pointing out every bird, every piece of foliage every tree they're pointing out everything they're looking at and there's this other guy and he just won't stop talking and singing he's singing then he'll talk some more then he'll sing and you're like Jesus who are these people and Jesus is like this ragtag bunch oh this here's a group of people I met back in Matthew chapter 9 and you're like wow Jesus I wondered how we were going to get to Matthew because we were on like a trail uh and then we were in Hebrews for a hot minute and <laughs> In Matthew, he tells, will you turn to Matthew 9? Look at Matthew 9, 18. Watch, watch. As you're turning to Matthew 9, 18, did you know the gospel writer Matthew is a, is a teacher's dream because he lays it out so orderly. Did you know after the Sermon on the Mount, which is like, here's what life in the kingdom is, he lays out three sets of three miracles and healings. Three sets of three with some follow me's in between. Three sets of three. It's as if to say the sermon is, King, here's what kingdom looks like, and then here's what the kingdom looks like when it's here on earth as Jesus does his healing. This last set of three is tricky because you get a fourth one baked in. You get like three plus a bonus healing because the first two kind of go together. You'll see how. But the point, there, Matthew just skirts right over so many of the details that Mark and Luke tell us because, look, the point Matthew just wants to get across is faith. When you trust Jesus, you please God. Trusting, that's it. So, so, so here we go. We first meet in Matthew, let's start in, what did I say, 18? We first meet a synagogue ruler. And by the way, those of you who know this story, this is Jairus and the daughter, the 12-year-old. Do, do you know this story? Give me a little nod if any of this sounds familiar. You probably know this from Mark's version, Luke's. The other gospels, you, the first thing you'll notice, they give so much more detail. Matthew's like, boom, boom. Why? Because he wants you to stay laser-focused on what he's talking about, which is faith. 
faith. When you trust him, you please him. So we meet this synagogue ruler. They, all these people, they get a lot of stuff wrong. They, <laughs> a lot of things they don't do right. You might even say that, 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 there are a lot of things that maybe don't please God, but they've got the one thing Jesus cares about. They trust him. So here we go, verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, what things? Remember, Jesus is still at Matthew's wild party. We still haven't left the party from two weeks ago where Matthew's gathered with all the tax collectors and sinners. He talked to the Pharisees. Then he talked to the disciples of John. Remember, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. You don't put orange juice into cold brew and try to drink. Anybody remember? You don't try to take Jesus and patch him into your old lifestyle. He's having this whole discussion when suddenly it's interrupted. While he was saying these things to him, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Matthew gives you none of the juicy details the other gospel writers tell you. The other gospel writers tell it's Jairus. He's a ruler of the synagogue, which meant he would have been a religious leader, a Pharisee. And you can imagine the Pharisees looking at this guy who comes barging in and they're like, who is this guy to kneel before this uneducated carpenter? Look what it says. He knelt before him. Where's your dignity, Jairus? What are you going to Kneel before this guy. And the answer to where's your dignity, by the way, every father in here knows when it's a choice between your dignity or your kid's life is on the line, that's an easy choice. Dignity's out the window. You'll do whatever it takes. And he goes to Jesus, she's dead, but if you'll lay your hand on her, she'll live. Oh, you feel terrible for the guy, but what faith? Jesus, is, you, can, you can raise her to life. Now, you want to say to Jairus, buddy, it's too late. I'm sure that's what people were thinking that day. It's too late. You, you could have come to Jesus for healing. We've seen him heal a lot of people. But, I mean, you should have called her earlier. Why would you make Jesus your last resort, man? Come to Jesus while there's still time. It's too late, Jairus. Too late. I wonder if there's anybody in here this morning who feels the weight of those two words. Too late. Have you ever felt that? Maybe you've even been told that. Uh, you, maybe there was a day, maybe you could have saved your marriage, but now I'm sorry. It's too late. You could have, God had all sorts of things in your life. You had this whole ministry, man. You, you were going to do all these things for God, but now mm-mm, too late. You could have raised godly kids, but they're grown now and off. You should have started early. You should have dealt with that stuff earlier. By now it's, I'm sorry, it's too late. So yes, Jairus should have come earlier. But a faith, watch this, a faith that is quote unquote too late is not too late for Jesus. When you trust God, it pleases him. When you trust Jesus, it makes him happy. And so off they go, verse 19. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Maybe time is of the essence. Maybe the ruler of the synagogue is thinking, well, she's dead, but she's not been dead too long. Maybe Jesus can, if we get there and do something in a hurry, maybe something... And then suddenly they're interrupted, which was agony, of course, to Jairus, who's thinking, come on, man, my 12-year-old daughter's dead, and ah, what's with the holdup? The holdup is verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. What's going on with this? Do you remember this woman? This is the woman with the issue of blood. Mark and Luke, they take this whole, like, chapter to deal with her. Matthew just, boom, woman with the issue of blood, right? Comes up behind. So we know uh, from the other gospels that she was a person in physical pain. Uh, this uh, hemorrhage for 12 years. Um, I, I think it's uh, uh, funny. So doctors today aren't like doctors back in Bible times. Some of the, some of the like, um, uh, uh, 
prescriptions they gave. If you go back and Google like ancient medicine, if, if you could survive the treatment, uh, it'd probably be uh, better off to go without. So, so when Mark and Luke tell the versions of this, I personally, I don't know, I, this is just funny to me, it makes me smile, but when Mark tells the story, it says that she went to physician after physician, she went to all these doctors, and the doctors were good at one thing, taking her money. She was worse off. She had less health when she started seeing these doctors than she did when she went in, and all they took was her money. When Luke tells the story, Luke, who was a doctor, he says she was incurable. <laughs> More than one way to spin that. Okay, she's in physical pain. She's also in social pain. Her, her money's all gone, and now religious pain. Remember, if you if you go back and read this. These were Jewish people, and under the Old Testament Torah, if you go back and look at Leviticus 25, anyone with this issue of blood, as long as they had this flow of blood, would remain ritually unclean. She's been ritually unclean for 12 long years. When you're unclean, it means you can't go, can't go to synagogue. She hadn't been in church in 12 years. She can't, because she's been told, if you get around other people and you bump into somebody, your uncleanness, like, rubs off on them, and now you've made them ritually unclean, and now they have to sit out until they can get ceremonially clean. So she is in a perpetual state of uncleanness. And so she, she thinks, unlike Jairus, who at least, look at this, Jairus can at least approach Jesus face to face. Look what she does, come up behind him. She thinks, maybe if I can just sneak up behind him, and then we get the whole reason. What, what on earth is she thinking? Reach out and touch the fringe of his garment. Where did that come from? We get her reasoning in the next verse. For she said to herself, if only I touch the garment of Jesus, if I just touch his garment, I will be made well. She reaches out in faith, and if I just touch his garment, I'll be made well. And she's standing on that promise. I ask you, what promise? Where did she get that in the Bible? Where did she get that in the Bible? That if I reach out and touch the garment, I'll be made well. Where'd she get that? Answer? Nowhere. She made it up. <laughs> it's not in there. But how can you blame her? She hadn't been in church in 12 years, right? She doesn't have a clue. She doesn't have a clue, right? So like Jairus is too late, and this lady is too confused. She has no Bible knowledge. And the only thing I can figure is she's been told her, her, her whole life that like your uncleanness, if you touch somebody else, will like transfer out of you and onto them. So maybe she thinks maybe it's like a two-way street, and maybe the cleanness of Jesus will flow out of him and like into me. I don't know. I'm just making this stuff up. But she's got what? Faith. So she reaches out. And it's like Jesus saying, when you trust me, it makes me happy. To everyone who feels like Jairus, I'm too late. To everyone who feels like this woman, I can't please God because I don't know my Bible too well. I haven't been in church in 12 years. Listen to me. Just trust him. When you trust him, it pleases him. And Jesus turned, look at verse 22. Jesus turned. Mark says he somehow felt the power go out of him. And seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. You have good Bible knowledge and your theology has made you well. Is that what it says? Take heart, daughter. You've got a lot of mileage down the pleasing me path. No, no, no. What's he say? Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. When you trust him, you please him. Won't you just trust him? She, she doesn't have any religious pedigree. Well, they arrive and remember, uh, 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 back to the action. 
We haven't forgotten about this poor ruler and his dead daughter. So they arrive at his house. And remember, funerals back then weren't like funerals today. Funerals today are very like somber, quiet affairs. Back then they were very loud. They would actually hire uh, professional mourners, these wailers that would you know, call out and play the flute and make, make, make a bunch of noise, I guess, as kind of catharsis to like, get the grief out. We would think that'd be a very weird tradition, but to be fair, they probably think our traditions around funerals are weird. So that's just how it was done. Verse 23, and when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Jesus has done this before where he's using a metaphor. He calls death sleeping. He does it with Lazarus. But they think he's being literal. And they're like, uh, Jesus, we, uh, we're professional mourners. We know how to check a pulse, okay? She's not, she's not asleep. She's stone cold dead. They laugh at him. But Jesus is undeterred, verse 25. When the, notice how Matthew compresses all this. He just wants you to see the faith. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in took her by the hand, and the girl arose. I'm, I'm sorry, what? I love that. Matthew's like, yeah, Jesus went in. There was a dead girl. Jesus went in, touched her by the hand, and then she's back from the dead. Next verse. Any questions? You're like, yeah, so many questions, right? But Matthew just wants to keep you focused on the faith. When you get Mark's version, you at least get what Jesus said. It says he touched her by the hand and spoke to her these words. Talitha kumi which translated into English mean, little girl, time to get up. What does that prove? And the girl rises from the dead. That proves that Jesus has so much power in just a word. Jesus didn't say, in the name of this God, or in the name of that God, or even in the name of his God. Why? Jesus is God with a word. Why not? He spoke the universe into being. Why couldn't he? And so he says, little girl, get up which means there's so much power in Jesus, Jesus can raise a dead 12-year-old girl back from the dead easier than you can get your 12-year-old daughter up for school on a morning. You don't believe me? Tomorrow morning, Monday morning, try that. Talitha Kumi. See what happens, right? Jesus raises the dead with just touch her by the hand. And, and the report of this went through the whole district, and I would say it did. What's my point? A faith that is too late, like Jairus, a faith that doesn't know enough scripture, like that woman with the issue of blood. Jesus seems to overlook all that if you'll just trust him. Because when you trust him, it pleases him. Matthew gives us another portrait of faith in verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him. It says two blind men followed him. I don't know how. <laughs> Crying aloud. I mean, the Bible's full of surprises. They had help. It's probably a sermon there. We move on. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. This son of David thing is a, that's a, should come with a trigger warning for first century Jews. That son of David is a title. It means God's Messiah, who's gonna set the world to rights, who's gonna bring God's kingdom. They called him the son of David. So far, this is, these are the first people who've been able to rightly identify that Jesus is Messiah, other than Matthew, who did it in the very first verse of his gospel. He starts, here's the story. Here's the genealogy of Matthew, son of David, son of Abraham. Since then, nobody has been able to figure out Jesus is the Messiah. And I just wanna point out a little bit of irony that the first people who are able to clearly see what is so obvious, the first people who can actually see that he is the Messiah are the blind. 
It's the blind who can see. And isn't that how it so often is? The buttoned up and the put together, the self-made and the self-assured, the self-reliant and the successful are the slowest to surrender, aren't they? Because they've got it all put together. But these blind guys who have nothing, isn't it something? The blind are the one who can see. He is the son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. So Jesus somehow gets him in the house. It's like he's wanting to keep this healing on the down low. We find out he is, and we find out why in just a second. So when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you have enough Bible knowledge? It's not what he asked. How far along down the pleasing path, the trying trail, have you been? Not what he asked. He wants to know one thing. Do you believe I'm able to do this? Because you guys have been saying that son of David thing, and if you know your Bibles, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 42, it's pretty clear. The Bible is clear. There's only one being in the universe that can open the eyes of the blind and make the mute people speak. It's God himself. So are, like, are you actually saying what I think you're saying? Do you believe that I am God in human flesh, Messiah, son of David? Because you're asking me to do something that only God can do. You really believe that? They said to him, yes, Lord. Oh, then he touched their eyes. You see that, verse 29? He touched their eyes, saying, according to your knowledge of the Bible, let it be done to you. (laughs) Is that what he says? No. According to your latest church attendance records. (laughs) No. According to the size of your most recent offering, let it be done. No, no, no. According to your recent behavior, have you been a pretty well-behaved Christian? No, no, no. According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their eyes, verse 30, were opened. Oh, when you trust me, it's like he's saying, when you trust me, you please me. When you trust me, it makes me happy. And Jesus, and, and, and listen, this is all Jesus asked. This is all Jesus asked. And he didn't just ask. The Bible says he sternly warned them. He's like, listen. You guys have got what you came for. You got the healing of your blindness, both of you. This is an incredible miracle. Would you do me just one favor? This is all I'm asking, and I'm sternly warning you to do just one thing. Will you do just this one thing? See that no one knows about it. Why would Jesus do that? In in, uh, biblical studies, they call this the messianic secret, because he does this all the time. Why? Because Jesus knows, for sheer crowd control, Jesus is like, look, I came to proclaim the kingdom, okay? I'm here to preach the gospel. People's eternal souls are at stake. I'm here to preach the gospel. If it gets out about this healing ministry, that will so overwhelm my preaching of the gospel that people will be like, Sermon on the Mount, blah, blah, blah. What about my healing, right? And they'll just be lined up. We won't even be able to move through the crowds. That's why, like, when he fed the 5,000, he had to basically thin the crowd right after that, and he did um, by the stuff he said. But he knew, he knew it's like the healing ministry would just overwhelm the crowd control. So he says, just don't tell anybody. That's all I ask. Now, let me ask you, if you have faith to believe, but then Jesus asks you something, let's see how they did. He just asked them one thing. Let's see how they did with that obedience. See to it that no one knows about it. Verse 31. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. Great job, guys. Great, great. That's great. He literally asked you to do, he didn't even ask you. He sternly warned you to do one thing and you couldn't do the one thing. After all he did for you, you couldn't obey him. Let me say that again. After all he did for you, you couldn't even obey him. What's the point? If you got 
a too late kind of faith, if you've got a too confused kind of faith, or if you've got a disobedient kind of faith, apparently what Jesus is after is just faith. He just wants you to trust him. For anybody who said, yeah, but I've messed up too many times. I'm like, these, yeah, I know, like, probably like these blind guys, right? The minute Jesus says something, we go out and we do the opposite. I know, but do you trust him? You can't make this stuff up. I was it, I, really getting excited on Thursday afternoon. I was, um, I, I felt like I had this message and God had laid it on my heart. And so um, there, uh, I was meeting with a church member, a good friend, and uh, he's out of town uh, th- this Sunday. And so I said, sister, I'm going to be here. Can I like, preach my sermon to you? And he was like, yeah. And so I was telling him about it. And I was like, don't you see? It's not a, the, the pleasing God path. He wants you to trust him. When you trust him, it makes him happy. So bring your, 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 your faith that seems too late and bring your faith, that, that, like that woman with the issue of blood that, that doesn't have enough Bible knowledge, and bring all your problems. Will you just trust him? When you trust him, it makes him happy. Even this, these disobedient guys, when you trust him, it makes you happy. He's after your faith. You can't make this up. We're in this coffee shop and the music's playing. And as I'm preaching, right when I get to the climax, is George, you gotta have faith, the faith, the faith. You gotta, and I'm like, I, I, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's about faith. Well, let's review. We've had some pretty incredible faith in Matthew 9. Even though it had some glaring flaws, we can learn. The ruler with the dead daughter had incredible faith to ask Jesus, but it came too late. Jesus seemed not to care about that because the fact is he trusted him. The woman with the issue of blood was filled with superstition and didn't know her Bible, but Jesus seemed to care more about the fact that she trusted him. The blind guys were immediately disobedient. Jesus seems to care more about the fact that they trusted him. What is the application for you this morning? Take your too late, confused, sometimes disobedient faith and bring it to Jesus because when you trust God, it pleases him. Some of you need to trust him in something this week. You're faced with a big decision. You're faced with something. And part of you, you have such a good heart. You've been walking the Christian life. I just want to please him. I'm telling you, if you'll trust him, that's, all, that's what he's asking. Well, one final word. <clears throat> what if someone is hearing this sermon and they would say, honestly, Tom, uh, I still can't get over what you said at the very beginning about that pleasing God path the trail of darkness that like went off the path altogether. What if that hit some of you pretty hard? Because you're like, that's how I feel. I feel like I haven't pleased God in a long time, and I feel like I'm off the path, and I feel like nobody knows it but me, so there's a lot of secrecy around this. It's very lonely down here. It feels very dark, and that's the word. It's just darkness, and I feel like I can't even cry out to God. You're talking about disobedient faith and maybe ill-informed faith, what about me? I can't even cry out. I am so covered in darkness, and I, I don't know about all the spiritual warfare stuff, but I feel about as attacked as I can feel right now, and I am in darkness, and I can't even cry out to God. Is there any hope for me? If that's you, it brings us to the very last healing that Matthew tells in the three sets of three. Notice how it's different than the rest. Similar in some ways, but different. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. Folks, it doesn't get any darker than this. He's a man oppressed by demons, and he's mute. He can't even cry out a prayer. And look at everybody else. The woman sought Jesus. The ruler comes to Jesus and kneels down. The blind men practically chase him down into the house. Everybody's seeking Jesus. Notice, was brought to him. This man can't seek Jesus, or he won't. We don't know. 
Was he brought by friends? Was he led? Because you know the demons that are oppressing him are not going to like help him. They're not going to encourage him to seek Jesus. So now you got somebody who's demon oppressed and he can't even cry out. He, he can't even. So, so we've talked about disobedient faith and too late faith and ill-informed faith. What about what looks to be no faith at all? What do you do then? That guy's completely off the path in the darkness, oppressed by demons and can't even cry out when he needs help. Matthew doesn't, it's incredible. Matthew doesn't tell us what Jesus said or what he did. He simply tells us this. And when the demon had been cast out, <laughs> oh, the power of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, all that oppression, all that darkness, not a problem for the king of glory. All authority in heaven on earth. Yeah, yeah, when it had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was there anything seen like this in Israel. Yeah, I'd say they did. And the Pharisees are like, well, he cast out demons by using demons. Which just proves haters going to hate, and they've been hating for centuries. No, don't you want to know? We don't know what Jesus said. The mute man spoke. Matthew doesn't tell us what, what the mute man said. Am I the only one? Does anybody want to know what he said? Like, I don't know. No one has ever asked me to define poetry but if they ever did, if they ever said, hey, Tom, we're looking for a definition of the word poetry, how would you define it? I think I would say this. Whatever the newly freed from demon oppression mute man spoke in Matthew 9, 33, whatever he said, that's my definition of poetry. Because whatever it was, we can only imagine the power of Jesus. What's my point? Well, if you got too late faith, if you got ill-informed faith, and if it if you got a disobedient faith, well, apparently, if you're down in so much darkness that you can't even cry out, and you'd say, Tom, I don't have any faith at all, apparently, Jesus will hook you up with that too. Apparently, this is all about, apparently, he'll give you what you need. You just keep trusting him. Just keep trusting him. When he, what he says to do, you say yes, and you keep trusting him. And in the end, you know what will happen? You'll live a life that's pleasing to God. It's like you'll look up to heaven and say, wait a minute. So the righteous one will live by faith. Yes, that's literally in Hebrews 10. When you trust him, you please him. Brandon's going to come and help us in a time of response, an invitation. I, I don't know. I, I think it's, it, apparently Jesus can work with a defective faith or a too late faith or a superstitious faith, but even if you have nothing at all that you feel like you can offer, he can work with that too. Just trust him. When I trust God, I please him. Some of you have written that down in your notes. When I trust God, I please him. But I don't know, like, maybe we should say it out loud. Would, would that be weird? That'd be weird. Let's just, uh, let's just say it out loud. Would, would you say, when I trust God, I please him. Would, would you say that with me out loud? Maybe we just need to say it. Maybe we just need to speak that. Let's say it together. One, two, three. When I trust God, I please him. He loves you so much. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And some of you are facing some big decisions. You're thinking, I, I, it's so hard to know what to do to please God. You trust him. And it's the craziest thing. You just trust him step by step. And as you trust him, you know what you want to start doing? You want to start reading your Bible more. Yeah, because that's how you build this relationship with God. And the next thing you know, your heart opens up in generosity and you start giving. And suddenly, if Jesus told you, you're not allowed to give anymore, you'd be mad. You'd say, no, I love you. I love 
trusting you with all of my life, including financial gift. And your parents and, you know, your, your kids, and you're like, wait, my job is to trust God. First and foremost, my job is to trust God. Here I am overthinking and stressing all these. And the list goes on and on and on. And you get done and you go, I didn't know I was living a life pleasing God. I was just trying to trust him. And you get pleasing God thrown in. That's something. How do we know? How do we know we can trust him on this trail? It is interesting to me that in Mark's version of particularly the woman with the issue of blood, it says he felt the healing. He felt the power leave him. I don't understand the metaphysics of all that. But it seems to me, it strikes me that for that woman to be healed, it's like for her to win, Jesus had to lose, maybe. Uh, like he lost some pain. And that matches up with what I read in Isaiah 53, which says that he bore our infirmities. He carried our sicknesses. The chastisement that brought us peace was laid upon him. The Lord laid the iniquity of us all on him. And it got me thinking like, that's how Jesus heals. He heals by taking the pain into himself. Listen, we celebrate doctors and nurses and all healthcare. We should. That's amazing. If you have a loved one with cancer, it's incredible to think a doctor with all their skill and ability, they can go in and surgically remove that cancer. That's awesome. But you've never met a physician who only removes the cancer by taking it into himself. Because the only way to heal spiritual cancer and sin is to take it into himself. That's why he's the great physician. And so for Jesus to heal that man born blind, he would have to close his eyes in death on Calvary's cross. For him to heal that mute man, he himself was silent in the tomb on Saturday. To heal that woman with the issue of blood, his own blood would have to flow from Calvary's cross. And for him to call that dead girl back up out of the grave, he himself had to go in the grave, in her place and for her salvation and that's how he heals so when you ask can i trust him he can say on this trusting trail with nail scars still in his hands you can trust me because when you trust god you please him let's pray god grant to us more trust for anyone who's been walking the christian journey for a long time we need more trust, more faith, oh God, increase our faith. For anyone who feels like they're frustrated and they're, they're in the darkness, God, grant to them your light today. Show them how much you love them. And God, for anybody who is not yet a believer, that today would be a day where they place their faith and trust in you and begin this Christian journey of trusting you. And thank you, oh God, for your great gift of salvation. Your son's death on the cross, which forever proves we can trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.